Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Hi, I'm Dahlia Lithwick, legal correspondent, author, and host of Slate's Amicus Podcast, a show about the rule of law, the law, and the Supreme Court justices who interpret it for the rest of us. I've been watching the high court for over two decades, and I bring all that experience and knowledge to examining the U.S. justice system and democracy. Each episode, I am joined by guests with deep knowledge of the law and policy who help me and you navigate our constitutional landscape. Slate's Amicus Podcast. Subscribe now wherever you listen. Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Barb McQuaid, or is that Barbie McQuaid? Ah. Kimberly Atkins Store, and me, Jill Wine Banks. Joyce is not with us this week, but she'll be back next week, and we miss her until she gets back. Today, we're going to be discussing January 6th news. That means we're talking about indictments for the interference with the peaceful transfer of power, including Trump's target letter. Michigan's fake electors indictment, RICO in Georgia, a trial date in Mar-a-Lago case. Plus, we'll talk about the GOP state AGs sending a letter threatening corporations if they don't drop DEI policies because of the Supreme Court's affirmative action ruling. We'll also update you on losses Trump suffered in two of the many other cases pending against him. One is about the District Attorney's criminal case based on hush money payments he made to Stormy Daniels, and the other is news of victories for E. Jean Carroll in both her cases against Trump. And as always, we look forward to answering your questions at the end of the show. And remember, go to politicon.com slash merch to buy our shirts, totes, and other goodies just in time for summer. I'm wearing the t-shirt today. We'd love to see you wearing one too. And before we get to the serious topics we're going to talk about, I have to ask you all about Gretchen Whitmer's tweet about Barbie and the major opening of the new Barbie movie. Did you both have Barbie dolls? I'm too old to have had one. I have a Hillary Clinton nutcracker that sort of (laughs) looks like a doll. I'll have to post a picture of that one. But tell me about your Barbie dolls. I did have Barbies go, and I want to, you know, be clear. This podcast is not sponsored by the Barbie movie, but you know, everybody, everybody knows Barbie, and it is a, a an American cultural icon. I did have Barbie dolls when I was young, and um, back then, when I was a little girl in the nineteen seventies, uh, there was also a Christie doll, which was the black Barbie mm. that I had. But my favorite one, my favorite one of all my Barbie dolls, is that there was actually a share. 
Barbie-esque doll. And she was a little bit taller than all of the other ones. Because she didn't quite fit in my like Malibu Barbie Corvette. Um, So she had to kind of like sit in the back seat sideways, which I thought made her look so cool. But she was my she was my favorite one. I always watched the Sunny and Cher show with my mom. So I definitely was a Barbie household. What about you, Barb? Barbie's in your household? Yeah, Barbie's in my household. But tell us about the Governor Whitmer tweaks. I didn't see it. Well, she it was so there was a Governor Whitmer Barbie in a series of tweets showing oh. uh, Barbie Governor Whitmer doing all of her hard work uh, for the people of the state of Michigan. <laughs> and I just thought that was such a clever way of showing, you know, Barbie in, you know, we had all these Barbie had Barbie had a lot of professions. Right. But a lot of them, <laughs> especially in the beginning, were a little they're a little sexist, let's be honest. But this was her being powerful, running a state, you know, supporting indictments against people who fomented an insurrection just just being badass so i loved it yeah it sounds more like the message of uh taylor swift than barbie <laughs> yeah no that's great I, well you know barbie is an empowering figure there was barbie president barbie astronaut barbie has had many important jobs in the barbie world that existed well before the real world so don't be dissing barbie you know um with barbie my name is barbara of course Barb. I have been called Barbie most of my life. There'd be a oh, lot wow. of, you know, the clever kids in elementary school. Hey, Barbie doll, where's Ken? You know, ha ha. That was the big <laughs> joke. You know, it wasn't terribly offensive, so you don't have to feel too sorry for me. But I did read just this week that the name Barbara reached its peak of names in 1964, which is perhaps possibly my my year of birth. Um, and so growing up, I've actually known a lot of Barbs or Barbaras or Barbies. Um, and some people even call me Babs, but they don't usually get away with it. Um, but I was going to say, not to your face. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I once played on a uh, high school softball team. And, you know, in softball, there are four outfielders. And we had an all-barb outfield. So, you know, that just tells you about the popularity of the name at at a certain age. And it was very challenging when there was a fly ball and people were, you know, yelling for Barb to catch the ball because we had four of us. So quick shout out to Barb Vernarski, Barb Cullen, and Barb Hempton. Hope you're still out there barbing away. (laughs) That is great. So I never was called Barbie. I never even had a nickname because if your name's Jill, people think it is a nickname. So I missed out on that. But Kim, I did have a black doll. It wasn't a Barbie. It was a little rubber doll that I named Sandy and who I loved enormously. She was actually my favorite doll of all. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Well, Donald Trump announced on Truth Social this week that he has received a target letter. Jill, let's start by talking about what a target letter is and whether it means, drumroll please, that an indictment is coming. So let's start with the definition of a target. A target is someone that the prosecutor or the grand jury 
thinks it has substantial evidence that links that person to the commission of a crime. And a target letter goes out when the prosecutor is very close to an indictment and making a final decision. It usually offers an opportunity for that person to come in and tell the grand jury his or her side of the story. And Donald Trump did announce that he had gotten a target letter including three separate crimes uh, were identified as far as reporting goes, saying that he was the target of this investigation about January 6th, or as it is now being called, the interference with the peaceful transfer of power. But it doesn't necessarily mean that he will be indicted. Um, In fact, and not getting a letter doesn't mean you won't be indicted. It is not mandatory. There's no law that says you have to send a target letter before indicting someone. And a lot of times prosecutors don't do that because we don't want the subject to know that they're under investigation. They might flee. uh, They might try to interfere with witnesses. So there's a lot of reasons not to tell the target that they are a target. Mm -hmm. Um, But in this case, we know that he got one or at least his It's been confirmed by many sources that he has gotten one, but it does not mean it's inevitable, although it's highly likely. And I don't know of any cases where someone has gotten a letter and talked their way out of getting indicted or not been indicted for any other reason. Yeah, I think Joyce mentioned back when Trump got the Mar-a-Lago target letter that she was aware of one situation where somebody came in and talked their way out of it. But same as you, Jill, usually when somebody sees a target letter, it means you're, you're on a path toward indictment. Most targets decline the invitation to come in because they don't want the information that they give to be used against them. And I would think in a case like this, it seems likely that it means they're pretty close to the end, right? Because Trump is the kind of witness, if you were to accept the invitation, you'd want to put last after you are as educated as you can be about the case by talking to all the other witnesses and reading all the other documents. So it definitely, to me, portends that we're getting close to the end. So I thought that was interesting. Well, let's talk about um, the charges that are included. According to reporting, Kim, the target letter lists three statutes that the grand jury is focused on. Um, And it leaves to us sort of to speculate what the theory of each of these charges might be. Um, One of them is conspiracy to defraud the United States. That's Title 18, United States Code, Section 371. What does that mean? How do you think that statute would be applied to the facts in this case? Yeah, so as I understand it, that is a general conspiracy statute. And you frequently see this statute cited in a charge when you have a case that involves a lot of people who collectively collectively acted, not just in fomenting an insurrection or trying to stop the peaceful transition of power, but in a lot of circumstances. So my understanding, and, and the prosecutors can correct me if I'm wrong, is this was the most anticipated charge. This is the one that most people guessed would be coming because Trump Trump acted, and a lot of other people acted uh, in concert in a number of ways, both uh, in the efforts, for example, to pressure state officials not to certify election result or not to um, uh, to find votes, for example, or uh, not to certify election results, or um, to encourage people even perhaps to go to the Capitol on January 6th. It's sort of a, an umbrella statute that's used for conspiracy. Yeah. And this would make sense to me, right? That it would allow them to get in A to Z, everything that they did even before the election, through the election, leading up to January 6th and beyond. So that would make some sense to me. Um, Jill, the second statute that's been cited is 
Title 18, United States Code, Section 1512. And some reporting, have you seen this, has said that the charge is witness tampering, but that's just the name of the statute. And so I think they may be uh, confused by the language because the statute actually includes a lot more than that. It's a whole bunch of different types of obstruction. What's your theory about how that statute might be used in this case? Well, you are right on all counts. Um, It is generally titled 18 U.S.C. 1512, tampering with a witness, victim, or an informant. But it includes a Section C. And Section C is where I think the uh, case is going to go, which is somebody who obstructs or impedes an official proceeding or attempts to do so. And that is obviously a very clear part of what happened here, where the mob went and try to stop the counting of the electoral uh, votes. So that would be interfering with an official proceeding. Um, And there are many other parts. The fake electors scheme fits into that because they were trying to get fake electors to claim that they were the real electors, and that would also interfere with the proceedings. So that was all part of it. The pressure on Pence would be part of it as well. So I'm, I'm guessing that it's going to be subsection C mm-hmm. that we are looking at and not the tampering. Yeah, I, I, I tend to agree with you. Unless maybe there's something we don't know about, but that makes sense to me. It's been used against many of the other um, uh, defendants, January 6th defendants. So that one makes a lot of sense to me. So those two really come as not much of a surprise to me. I think there's been a lot of talk about those. But there's a third one that kind of blows me away. Kim, this third statute is deprivation of rights in violation of Title 18 United States Code Section 241, which makes it a crime to deprive someone of their civil rights. What do you make of that one? Yeah, so the language of the statute um, criminalizes uh, conspiring to injure, threaten, or intimidate a person in the United States in the free exercise or enjoyment of any right or privilege secured by the Constitution or laws of the United States or because of his or her having exercised such right. Now, this law was one of many that was passed during the Reconstruction era. and. It is meant to secure the civil rights, particularly of those uh, who had been disenfranchised at the, of those rights or who had, had never been uh, yet enfranchised with those rights, uh, specifically Black people in America. And so wh- what I gather from this is the theory of the case is that by trying to, quote, find uh, some votes in places like Georgia uh, and elsewhere uh, or trying to subvert the vote in the states that the people who are trying to do that did, that that was depriving those voters of something that they have the right, both under the Constitution and under federal law to do, which is vote in a presidential election. I think that this is a great charge. I think it's an important one if it comes to pass. You know, I wrote a column, um, I don't know, sometime last year, I'll drop the link in the show notes, um, basically making the case that Reconstruction era statutes like this uh, should have been referred by the January 6th committee, frankly, because they're so in line with what happened, and particularly because they come from the Reconstruction era and they have everything to do with race. Look at the cities where the challenges to the vote in 2020 were taking place. It was Detroit, it was Atlanta, it was Milwaukee. 
It was Philadelphia. It was places that had very, very large black votes. And those are the places where the election was lost for Donald Trump. And it's no coincidence that those were the places that were being challenged. And I thought, especially given that and also just the imagery that we saw on January 6th at the Capitol, Confederate flags Mm -hmm. and all kinds of uh, white supremacist insignia, that this is precisely the sort of thing that the Ku Klux Klan Act um, was meant to guard against the kind of uh, vigilantism that was meant to discourage and, and to intimidate Black and brown folks from taking part as full citizens in the right to vote. That seemed plain to me. That seemed to be a good basis for this. And it sort of seems like something similar is happening here, or at least I hope it is, because I think for posterity, that's an important point to me. Yeah. In fact, Kim, I remember that column distinctly. I thought it was really eye-opening. I think you wrote it at the conclusion of the January 6th investigation, um, sort of pointing out that this was all about race people, you know, and it, it was it's kind of deafening silence about uh, the recognition of that in their report. And um, in fact, I've cited it in my book um, because oh, I well, think it, it raises such an interesting point that so much of this um, mega movement is about racial identity and threats to racial identity. Um, and, and, you know, it is what motivates people to try to win at any cost. Super interesting. I think one other thing about this, tell me if you disagree with me, but one thing that has struck me about this particular statute that might be really brilliant is unlike the other two statutes, where I think they're going to have to prove that Trump actually knew he had lost the election, right? For the conspiracy to defraud the United States, you have to show that he was acting with a fraudulent intent, which means he knew he had lost the election. I think for the 1512, he need, they need to show that he had a corrupt intent, meaning that he knew he had lost the election. But I think for this one, you can prove it even if he believed he won, because what he was doing was subverting the voting process. And so mm. even if he thinks, well, I, I was going to win anyway, that doesn't matter. Um, you were trying to deprive people of the rightful vote. Like in Georgia, when he says, I want 11,780 votes, he doesn't care how they get there. He just believes he's entitled to them. So you should, you know, kind of fix it, do a makeup form, like a makeup call ref, you know, um, yeah. to, to, to uh, rig the outcome uh, in my favor to sort of correct the injustice or something. But that's not how it works. You can't do it that way. And so I wonder if one theory behind adding this statute was, an effort to, you know, even if a jury is not persuaded that Trump knew he lost, though I think they can win on that using a theory of willful blindness and all the people who told him he lost, including his own consultants. Um, If a jury somehow thinks, gosh, I just, I don't know, you know, the government has the burden of proof here. I think this is one they can win without even proving that he knew he lost. I agree with you, Barb, completely. But I think there's no question that they can prove that he knew or that he was willfully ignorant, that he had all the evidence he needed to make a reasonable choice and that he couldn't possibly have concluded that he won the yeah. election. Well, let me ask each of you, I've got one quick question for each of you that's uh, slightly uh, adjacent to this topic. Jill, let me start with you, that there is some reporting um, that Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis is getting close to an indictment and is actually preparing RICO charges against Trump. This would be the Georgia state RICO statute. Can you explain just generally what, what RICO is? Sure. RICO is Racketeer Influence Corrupt Organization, And um, it was a law at the federal level that passed just as I was becoming a prosecutor and was intended to go after organized crime, but has since been successfully used and states have passed similar laws as Georgia has. And they have used it 
well beyond organized crime. Um, it is an broader in Georgia than it is at the federal level because it charges um, can be based on an attempt to do another crime as opposed to a completed crime. And this is, it says it's unlawful for any person to conspire or endeavor to violate any of the provisions of law that they work together to do and to conspire in order to commit an overt act. So they have to do something in furtherance of the conspiracy. It's not enough to just have an agreement that you're going to do something. You have to take some action. And I would say in this case, they have plenty. I mean, in Georgia, you have the phone call. There is an overt act in the attempt to take down the election. So I would say that they have a very strong case in Georgia, and it has harsher penalties than just an ordinary crime. So it's a good good one to be using. And Fannie Willis has a history of successfully using RICO charges. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. I think it, um, uh, it encompasses a large scope so you can get in all kinds of other activity that is related to um, the, the heart of the case. Um, and then in Michigan, Kim, uh, your home state, this week, Attorney General Dana Nessel filed charges against the 16 fake electors with forgery, election fraud, and some related charges. Um, why do you suppose uh, she has filed state charges and will that in any way impact the federal charges that Jack Smith is investigating? Well, I think that it was fantastic, first of all, that they did this. And I hope other states where there were phony electors follow suit. So uh, the charges are all felonies and come with uh, 14-year prison sentences. And it they are counts of a conspiracy to commit forgery, forgery, and something called uttering and publishing, which I honestly, the first time I heard that term, and a lot of people don't understand what it is, was when I was a, actually a bank teller in college. It was even before law school. And what that means is people know what forgery means. It means creating a fake document. But uttering and publishing is actually trying to use it. So if you have a fake dollar bill, if you make a fake dollar bill, that in itself is a felony. But if you try to take it to a bank and deposit it, that's uttering and publishing. That's an additional felony. And what they're allegedly charging is that uh, these electors, when they gathered together in the basement of the Republican Party headquarters uh, in Michigan, and they called themselves duly elected and qualified electors, and then submitted the documentation of that to the U.S. Senate and National Archives, each along the way they were committing state felonies, uh, multiple state felonies. So I think that this is great. I think that this is important. And I think every state where this happened should do this. How it will affect Jack Smith? I'm not sure that it will, other than perhaps if he had not looked into this as a basis of charges, maybe that could light a fire under him. But it seems from the reporting that we've seen that he's already on this. That he's already looking at the phony electing elector scheme. So this seems to me like a parallel path. But you guys, again, are the prosecutors. So I want to hear your views. I would say it only affects how they schedule trials because the witnesses would be the same witnesses in federal and state cases. And they can't be in both trials at the same time, so they would have to just coordinate the trial date. But there's no reason why you cannot have a violation of state law that also violates federal law. 
and both could be tried. Yeah, I, I think th- the same. And um, I, I think, you know, Dana Nessel had said previously that she, when she learned about this uh, apparent violation of the law, she shared it with the Justice Department and asked them to investigate. And then she got tired of waiting. Uh, so she said she earlier this year, she was just going to pick up the investigation herself and look into it and filed these charges and, you know, said that uh, they lied in a very official formal document that's very important about election law and the rights of the voters of Michigan. So, you know, kudos to her for filing this charge. I think the defense will be that they did not intend to defraud anybody. It was just sort of, sort of conditional or provisional in some way. But she's got uh, evidence that she has cited about them saying, like, you must keep this secret, that there was at one point an effort to sneak into the uh, the state house and spend the night there so that they could be in the place where they're supposed to be to cast the vote. So I think there's enough sort of consciousness of guilt, evidence of intent here to go forward. So I'll be really interested to watch this case play out. So I have been wanting to get both of your reactions to Republican state attorneys general sending what I would call a threatening letter to Fortune 100 companies, warning them that if they don't drop their diversity, equity, and inclusion workplace policies, they may face legal action. Barb, you know, a lot of companies adopted these policies after uh, George Floyd was killed in 2020 as a way to be more responsive to racial inequities in all forms. But these attorneys general cite Title VII, which we've talked about many times on this podcast, and it protects uh, women, people of color, and LGBTQ folks in the workplace. Well, that's the context that we usually discuss it. But it seems here these AGs are flipping the script and suggesting white men need to be protected in corporate America. What do you think about this analysis, Barb? Yeah, you know, I think that they are putting a little too much stock in the recent affirmative action cases, the cases out of Harvard and the University of North Carolina. The context there is a little bit different, right? Those were Title VI and the 14th Amendment that they were looking at there. It related to higher education and not corporate America. And also, even though I I know, you know, the headline is that the Supreme Court has overturned affirmative action, I would say a better way to phrase it was they gutted it because they still recognize, and this is a really important point, I think, that it is okay to draw racial lines as long as you have a compelling reason and your program is narrowly tailored to achieve that reason. And so I think that even though those programs were struck down, Chief Justice Roberts said, you can still talk about how your race impacted your character or your experiences or your viewpoint. You just can't say everybody who shares this racial qualification, racial description, um, you know, can be admitted on that basis. And so um, I think that, you know, number one, until uh, courts rule that this applies to corporate America, I would expect them to continue to do what's good for business, which is to promote diversity, equity, and inclusion. They, They wouldn't do it if it weren't good for business. Customers want to know that they are doing business with corporations that care about values like diversity, equity, and inclusion. So I think they're going to continue to do that. There's nothing that would require them to stop. This is not a precedent that is in any way binding or applicable to corporate America. I think they'd have to make a separate challenge under Title VII. Maybe they can make out the case, but unless and until they do, if I were advising a corporation, I would just keep on keeping on. 
So, Jill, uh, as we mentioned, they cite the affirmative action decision by the Supreme Court. Do you think that reasoning extends to corporate workplaces? And if so, do you think this is just the tip of the iceberg? Do you think that there will be challenges to other other things, too? Well, I'm going to give you inconsistent answers because, no, I don't think it applies to corporate America. And I would go further than what Barbara said, which is to say there is, even in their striking down affirmative action in the way they did, they said it's okay in the Pentagon Mm -hmm. because it's really important to have a diverse workforce (laughs) so that the leaders look like the workforce. Well, excuse me, but that's a workplace. It is. Mm. And so I I think that they're saying right there that corporate America can continue to do what it thinks is best. And we know for sure that corporations that have diverse workforces have more profit than others. It's proven time and time again. So corporations are going to want to keep doing that and have an obligation, I think, to keep doing that. And there is nothing in the decision which is limited to higher education and to schools that get federal money. Um, Now, if they do bring a case and it goes to the Supreme Court, everything I've said could be thrown out because the Supreme Court is unpredictable and goes further than it ever should or could or that we would have ever predicted. They have thrown out precedent time and time again. And so who knows what they would do with that case? I don't know, but it does seem to me that the Pentagon exception may speak to uh, a workplace being exempt from the affirmative action ruling. That's a really good point that they totally carved out the Pentagon in in, in a way, and they didn't really explain why. They just kind of did. Well, that's really important, Jim. (laughs) Good grief, yeah. (laughs) But they did, and that's an important thing um, to point out. And to your point about, you know, profitability, not only uh, has it shown, and I, I wrote a column that cited some of these statistics, and I'll put it in the show notes, but it is more profitable when uh, companies have more diverse workplaces and boards, and when you have more women and people of color in C-suites, um, those companies have been shown to be more profitable and more uh, innovative. But Title VII is meant to guard against discrimination, right? So it, what it's meant to do is if there is a barrier put in place in in front of somebody because of their gender or because of their sexual uh, orientation or because of their race. It's meant to bar using that barrier. There is no barrier. <laughs> like, show me the barrier to white men in corporate America. Like, let's be for real. They make up 30% of the U.S. population and they run everything and they have a majority of board seats not just in Fortune 100 companies, but through actually the Fortune 100 do better on diversity than Fortune 500, the, the 400 under them, right? So overall, in corporate America, it is run by white men. Who is being discriminated against? Like, this is just <laughs> such nonsense. Anyway, Barb, Democratic attorneys general sent their own letters uh, letter in response to the letter that the GOP official. I should also note that the GOP officials... I think it was 17 of them. I think 15 were white men. Um, Whereas the Democratic attorneys general were 
multiracial, multi-ethnic, anyway, women, uh, let me just stop. But I was on a press call with some of the DO, uh, with some of the Democratic attorneys general, and I asked what action they could take in response to this. And essentially what they said is, well, you know what, we're going to encourage these corporations to keep on keeping on with their DEI policies and don't be bullied by the Republicans. And I sort of thought, okay, that wasn't, that was not the most satisfying answer, Barb. Is there more that they could do in this case? Yeah, I don't know that there is actually, Kim, because I think that, you know, if they were to try to bring some sort of lawsuit against the challenge and be very proactive and aggressive to say, um, you know, you're interfering with our business, we have a right to do this. I think the worry is sometimes, you know, you think about this strategically, you don't want to make bad law. And so if you set your entity on a course toward the U.S. Supreme Court, as Jill has mentioned, they've been a little bit unpredictable. And to the extent they are predictable, they strongly disfavor uh, racial preferences of any kind. You know, even though I, I would argue that diversity that is based on a compelling interest that is narrowly tailored would uh, would would be permissible. Um, so I think they'd what they'd probably rather do is if any of these companies, Target is one that has been mentioned and others, do find themselves as a defendant in a lawsuit, what these attorneys general could do would be to uh, either file a statement of interest, you know, get involved and file um, their own brief or lead a, a group of uh, amici, you know, friends of the court and file an amicus brief and talk about the value of diversity in the workplace. I know when we had the Grutter versus Bollinger case involving affirmative action at the University of Michigan Law School a decade or so ago, uh, a large number of large corporations filed uh, amicus briefs like General Motors and others who talked about the value of diversity in their workplace, that it it added to the value of their products to have diverse perspectives around the table talking about what the product ought to look like and how to market it and how to sell it and all of those things. And so um, I think helping play defense pr- here is probably the better strategy than going on the offensive. Yeah. Joe, what do you think? I mean, you said you, you already worry about what the SCOTUS might do if a challenge like this ultimately reaches it. What do you think? I, I, I think there is very little, unfortunately, that the attorneys general can do other than what Barbara has said. And I think, you know, the statistics are so compelling in terms of how much help it is to the profitability of a company to have a diverse workforce. You know, Barb mentioned in terms of a lot of things, but even in terms of who you market to, the population buying products is a very diverse population. And if you have a diverse workforce, they will not only develop products for that. You know, I've worked in two corporations that are very much dependent on marketing things that people will buy. And in order to know what people will buy, you have to know those people. And so I think it is very helpful to have a diverse workforce. And therefore, there is a compelling interest for it in the same way that, as I said, the Pentagon was viewed as, yeah, it's it's okay for them to do DEI because they really have to have a diverse workforce. Well, so do other corporations. So I, I think that maybe, although I worry with the Supreme Court and I worry about what other possible uh, ways that attorneys general who want to could bring cases to expand 
the affirmative action recent decision, I think that in the workplace, they're going to be safe and that corporations can continue to do what they are doing to help create diversity, equity, and inclusion in their workplaces. I hope you're right, Jill, because according to an estimate by the World Economic Forum, racial inequity in the labor market costs the U.S. economy $51 trillion in the last 30 years. Racism costs everybody. And listen, I have been, I've had the experience not only of being the only black face in a classroom uh, many times in my higher education experience, I've also been the only black face in a workroom or on a team uh, or something else. And I know what that feels like. It happens to a lot of people. It's a great burden on those folks and good on these companies for trying to ensure that their workplaces are inclusive and supportive of everyone in it and welcoming because that's a big deal and it's important. In addition to the criminal cases, we expect to be filed imminently, whatever that means, in D.C. and Georgia. There are multiple other cases pending against Trump and Trump Org, and there were new developments in three of them this week. Two are civil cases, one by E. Jean Carroll that we'll discuss, and one from Michael Cohn against Trump Org that is reportedly being settled today in lieu of starting a trial next week. These are two out of the over 4,000 civil cases involving Trump just between the 80s and his election in 2016. So, and it doesn't count more of the cases that were filed since he became president, uh, including the New York Attorney Generals. But today I wanna to talk about developments in two of the cases. One is the E. Jean Carroll case first, and I'm gonna to turn to you, Kim, because she won $5 million in her defamation case against Trump for remarks he made after losing the presidency, or after he was not the president, after he was out of office. And um, she's had several victories since the verdict in that case. Um, and so I want to talk about that. So you're our civil litigation expert. So I wanna start by asking you to sort of just remind our jury that there are two cases, and although the one that was tried is actually the second, it's case number one in many people's mind. Um, so just talk about what the two cases are and how this week she defeated Trump in his quest for a retrial of the case that has already been tried and for reducing the verdict in that case. Can I just interject that Jill just said, tell our jury what uh, what all that means? <laughs> Oh, tell our jury. <laughs> yeah, you oh. know when you're an old trial oh, lawyer, okay. old habits oh, die hard. So you okay. get so you get a bunch of lawyers together, and we're we're we get used to reminding the jury. Jill said, "Remind the jury, remind our <laughs> listeners." But in a way, you all are our jury, right? Yeah. You you, you <laughs> rendered you you render a decision about what all this is about. <laughs> so, uh, just a reminder that the verdict uh, in favor of E. Jean Carroll was actually the second defamation case that she filed because the first one had been put on hold for some time while uh, there was a determination to be made about whether Donald Trump could be a defendant in a case uh, if he was potentially acting within the scope of his job as president of the United States. We'll get put a pin in that. We'll come back to that later. So she filed a, a second defamation case based on comments that he made 
after leaving office. So that defense could not uh, be offered by him. And that led to that $5 million verdict. So a couple of victories for her. The first one was Donald Trump was seeking to uh, throw out that award saying that he did not actually rape her. The jury found that he did not rape her. Uh, so he wanted a new trial because the verdict was excessive, $5 million for what essentially was just sexual abuse, which just made me angry. And said, so, you know, that's the sort of charge that you would file against someone who say, and these are the words of Donald Trump's filings, you know, groped a breast or something. It's not like rape. First of all, Groping a breast is battery. It is battery. And if it's done in a threatening way, it's also assault. It is traumatizing. It's a horrific crime. So stating that as if that's no big whoop is so offensive. And I think it would more than support a $5 million award. Yeah, like he goes around doing that every day. What's the big deal? What is that frowned upon? <laughs> I mean, my goodness. God, I can't even do that what? anymore. <laughs> what an argument to make. That is so offensive. You know, you walk in a room, but, you shake hands with the guys, you fondle a breath. That's oh my God. It's so offensive. So, but Judge Kaplan made a point that A, that wasn't even alleged in this case. So that's an inappropriate, in, in, inapt uh, description. What was alleged was something much awful. Was that Donald Trump taking his hand and penetrating her? I'm sorry, this is a children's show, but that's what it is. And under any general parlance, Somebody would understand that to mean rape. It is a very serious accusation, and it could more than support that kind of jury award. So he loses on that. Also, he loses in that the current Justice Department has reversed course from the Bill Barr Justice Department and said it would no longer defend Donald Trump and claim that he was acting within the scope of his employment in that first civil trial, uh, and that Donald Trump is on his own. So it was a very good week for E. Jean Carroll. It was great because that ruling by the Department of Justice also means that he is not immune to the suit because the Department of Justice, if it's substituted as the defendant, cannot be sued for defamation. But Donald Trump can be. So it really was a big verdict for her. And of course, we know that he does more than grow breasts. He says, I grab, and it is a family show, so I'm not going to say the word, but everybody listening knows to the it. word. He, he definitely did. And, and just to make it clear, the judge was very clear in saying, yes, in common parlance, this is rape. It is only by the fluke of the specific language of New York's rape law that requires the penetration not be by a finger to be considered rape. And um, this was a big issue when I was on a committee looking at sexual assault in the military and was assigned to the committee to redraft the rules of the military code of justice and to define what rape was. And at first I was so uncomfortable using the words that you have to use, but luckily was on the committee with a former New York state prosecutor who did uh, only sex crimes and who was very comfortable with the words. So I became comfortable, but we won't use them here. But okay, so second, Kim, and this is to go a little more in depth. If we go back to her original case, the one where he was the president and defamed her, as you said, the department reversed its previous uh, agreement to represent Trump and make him not immune. What did Department of Justice say about why they reached that decision? Because the Trump AG, we can understand why they said they would represent him, 
But it's been a long time since Biden has been president and Merrick Garland has been the attorney general and they continued with it. What changed their minds? Well, it's I don't know why it took so long. I I, I would have thought that they could have come out with this letter much earlier. Uh, but essentially what they did is do an analysis of the respondeat superior standard. And we've talked about this before. It's basically when an employer steps into the place of an employee, in this case, it would be the United States stepping in the place as the president of the United States. And as you noted, they would be, the United States would be immune from such a suit. But it said in this case, that doctrine of respondeat superior does not apply because the facts in this case uh, does not, and now I'm reading from the late, from the letter, support a determination that he was acting within the scope of his employment when he denied sexually assaulting Miss Carroll and made other statements regarding Miss Carroll that she challenged in this action. Basically, it is not a duty of the president of the United <laughs> States to say what he said. He was not acting in any official capacity. He was not representing the country when he did that. He was doing that as an individual. And therefore, there's no place for the DOJ in this action. Right. And and I think they also said um, that it was partly because he had done it twice after he was president. Yeah. And so that just showed that it wasn't part of his job to do. He continued doing it. But so, Barb, let's turn to another interesting aspect of the verdict that she got in that it impacts her second case to go to trial, which is really the first case. And that's the one for his defamation while he was still president that Kim was discussing. And that is something that I, I love saying race judicata or claim preclusion. Can you explain how this will impact the trial that is going to go forward now? Yeah, race judicata means things decided. It is also the uh, goofy pun that is used anytime groups of lawyers do running competitions. They yes, call it the I've race judicata. Race Have you ever run in a race judicata? I've run in a yes, race judicata. Yes, I've run in many. Everybody thinks they're so clever. Oh, we're going to call it race judicata. Get this. It's one of those concepts you learn about in first year civil procedures. Everyone walks around thinking they're so funny. Um, but I think race judicata and claim preclusion means that in a prior trial, some other court has already ruled on this thing. And so there's no need to relitigate it. The parties can just come in and say that's been decided. So that would be a whole claim. There is a second subset of that, which I think is probably the one that applies here, called collateral estoppel, and that is issue preclusion. So it's not the whole claim that's been litigated before, but it is an issue that has been decided. And in this instance, it is the sexual assault. So if when this case goes to trial again, I, I think E. Jean Carroll can say, we don't need this jury to decide whether there was a sexual assault at the Borgdorf Goodman dressing room in 1990, whatever it was. That's been decided. What we'll look at instead are the other elements of defamation. That is the statements here, which are different from the first trial. These are some of the ones issued on the uh, White House letterhead and on the the grounds by the helicopter and all that. Um, was it published? Was it false? Was it was Trump at least negligent, or I guess it's actual malice in this case? Did he know it was false, and did he say so with actual malice, and did those statements damage her reputation? So they'll have to prove up all the other stuff, but I think as to the issue 
of whether there was or wasn't a sexual assault. I think we're done. And then I think even the word rape, as uh, Kim and Jill, you just discussed, based on Judge Kaplan's finding that in common parlance, this was a rape, I think that they can say uh, this issue is precluded from further litigation. The jury can simply be instructed that this rape occurred. Perfect. And let's move to a different case, and that's the DA's felony charges against Trump. There was another loss for him in that case. Um, and so maybe just briefly remind our listeners, <laughs> I got it this time, um, what that case is about and what happened in court this week that uh, was good for the prosecution. Yeah, you know, this is two indictments ago, so it seems like such a long time ago, it's hard for people to remember. This is the Alvin Bragg uh, indictment, charging Donald Trump with falsifying business records for the payments he made to Michael Cohen to then be used as hush money for Stormy Daniels uh, on the eve of the election. So that case was filed in state court, and Donald Trump was endeavoring to have it moved to federal court. And there may be some strategic advantages there. Federal court draws from a, a larger geographic area. So perhaps he thought he could get a more favorable jury to include suburban New Yorkers as opposed to just people living in Manhattan. Um, but the idea that this could be removed to federal court is based on um, the law that says when you sue or charge uh, a federal official based on uh, conduct committed in the scope of their employment, then that case belongs in federal court. And so that was the argument that the Trump team was making. And the court decided, no, this related purely to Donald Trump's personal affairs. This was not any part of his duty as president to make these hush money payments. I think he wrote some of the checks while he was in the White House, but they were very much about protecting his personal reputation and protecting his campaign, not in any way serving the country uh, in his role as president. And so for that reason, this motion was denied and trial will proceed in state court where it was filed. Well, it's time for our favorite part of the show, and that is to answer your questions. We had some really good ones this week, and we will answer the three that we have time for. If you have a question for us for next week, please email us at sistersinlawpoliticon.com or thread or tweet using hashtag sistersinlaw. If we don't get to your question during the show, keep an eye on our thread feeds throughout the week because we oftentimes answer your questions there. The first question is for you, uh, Barb, and it's from Ellen in Goleta, California. Why has Steve Bannon remained free for so long after his appeal of his contempt conviction? That is a great question, Ellen, from Goleta, California, because um, I think it's an outrage that he is out. Ordinarily, when someone is convicted of a crime and has been sentenced, they are they start serving their term, even while their appeal is pending. There's a federal statute on this that says, um, you know, except a, a, upon another finding, um, the defendant who is awaiting appeal shall be detained, shall be. But they give an exception if the judge finds first by clear and convincing evidence that the person is not likely to flee or pose a danger to the safety of the community. Okay, maybe I'll give you that one. Um, but, and the judge also has to find this, 
that the appeal is not for the purpose of delay and raises a substantial question of law or fact likely to result in reversal, an order for a new trial, a sentence that does not include prison or a reduced sentence. I I don't see how they find any of those things. I mean, I suppose they'll say maybe he raises some issues uh, regarding um, executive privilege that are worth talking about. But remember his his conduct, the stuff he was he was tes- subpoenaed to testify after he had left um, the White House, and so I don't see how the judge could have found that there was uh, uh, a substantial question of law or fact likely to result in a reversal or an order for a new trial. So, gosh, to me, it just seems like uh, people getting special treatment. It also seems to me you're being too generous in thinking, okay, I'll give you he's probably not a flight risk, but that he's not a danger to the community. I don't think so. I think he is a danger to the community. Anyway, the next question is for you, Kim, from Sharon. If a jury finds Trump not guilty or cannot agree to a verdict, can a judge either overturn or make a verdict of his own? That's a a great question, Sharon. So in the event uh, of either a not guilty verdict, a unanimous verdict for not guilty, or uh, a jury hanging, which means unable to agree on a verdict, a judge can't substitute his or her judgment of guilt in the place of the jury. Uh, But if there is a case where a jury finds a defendant guilty and a judge finds as a matter of law, the evidence presented could not possibly support a verdict, a judge does have the power to go the other way uh, and direct a verdict um, of not guilty, but it can't go the other way. A judge cannot take it upon himself or herself to convict someone where a jury did not. And our last question, and all of these, by the way, are from Threads, where all of us are now also uh, active um, at most of, I think, the same um, names that we have on other social media sites. Uh, And this one comes from Lisa. She asks whether former President Trump is trying to prolong his trial dates down the road and closer to his hearing date. Could he fire his current counsel and hire a new team? Would he then gain more time so his new counsel gets clearance and in, that they need in order to defend him? And the answer is he can try that, um, but unless he has a good reason for firing his counsel, the judge isn't going to let the counsel withdraw. And I think in this case, it would be an obvious ploy for delay without any reason for firing his counsel. So his counsel are pretty much in this for the duration, and he's not going to get away with that, in my opinion. Thank you for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Kimberly Atkinstore, Bob McQuaid, and me, Jill Wine Banks. Don't worry, Joyce will be back next week. And remember, you can send in your questions by email to sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet them or thread them for next week's show using hashtag sistersinlaw. Please support this week's sponsors, Blue Land, HelloFresh, Lomi, and Olive and June. You can find their links in the show notes, and please support them as they really help make this show happen. And go to politicon.com slash merch to buy our shirts, totes, and other goodies. 
To keep up with us every week, follow hashtag Sisters in Law on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and please give us a five-star review. It really helps others to find the show. See you next week with another episode, hashtag Sisters in Law. So it's not a Barbie. It's about the size of an American girl's doll. But a friend of mine who has since passed away uh, years ago saw a doll online and said that it looked like me. So I bought it <laughs> and I put it in oh. a dress that I designed. So this oh, is oh my gosh. Oh my God. That's creepy. This is the Kimmy doll. The little Kim. Little Kim. <laughs> oh my God. That's fantastic. Oh my god! I'm gonna have to get it up and get the looks doll. Like I you. have. It's kind Hold of. On. It's a little right. eerie, frankly. It does. Yeah, yeah. When my hair is curly, it, I love it, it. You know, the little Kim doll. The little Kim doll. Excellent. Oh, Ruth! Leave it to Jill. She's got an RBG doll. That's Excellent. the doll that I have sitting facing me when I record. She inspires me all love the time. Love it. Yeah, I have an RBG yeah. action figure that I have in my office. Same. And I really do have a Hillary Clinton nutcracker.